1: Starts with the right golf ball, Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun, Adele Golf, hit it, flip it, dial it in, and the McLemore Club Experience, live above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Hey, good evening, folks, and thank you for joining me on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. I can't begin to tell you how excited I am about tonight's show. The trio I have for you tonight makes ZZ Top look like a high school garage band. We're going to talk about who that is in just a moment. But before we do, I want to thank all of you again for voting Next on the T up to number two in the podcast magazine Hot 50 list for their June edition. You guys are so great. I'm so thankful for all of your support. We have an opportunity for one last push to get the show up to number one for the July edition. So please go online and vote. And you can do so daily at podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. We are so close. Your vote could be the one that makes a difference. So please go online and vote. I really appreciate all of your wonderful support. And speaking of wonderful support, I want to give a special shout out To Mark Evans, listening over in England. Mark, thank you so much for the shout-outs this past weekend on Twitter. I really appreciate you doing that and your support for the show. Same to John Moran, listening in Indianapolis. John, you're awesome. Thank you, my friend, for your support as well. Okay, on to tonight's show. First up is going to be two-time major champion and one of the best on-course commentators on the planet, Dottie Pepper. Tonight, I'm going to get Dottie's thoughts on the battle going on right now between the PGA Tour and the Live Tour. It just gets more intriguing by the day, doesn't it, folks? Dottie made history at the Masters, becoming the first on-course commentator. So looking forward to hearing what that was like. I'll get her perspective. And you guys know, this drives me nuts. Why are guys insisting on going for the pin on 12 during the final round of the Masters, or any round for that matter? Hit it over the bunker. Guys see that pin on the right side of 12, they go for it, and more times than not, they end up in Rays Creek and their tournament is over. I want to hear Dottie's thoughts on all of that. We'll also talk about the incredible success her book, Letters to a Future Champion, has seen. Completely sold out, folks, which is absolutely amazing. Dottie is going to join me here in just a few minutes. Following her, I'll get a return visit from the only player to defeat Tiger Woods twice, in a match play event, and that's Nick O'Hearn. I'm going to talk to Nick about what those matches were like. We'll also see if Nick had a number, had his countryman, Greg Norman, come to him when Nick was out on tour in the early part of the 2000s. Had Greg come to him with a number about joining an alternate tour, would Nick have listened to that idea? I'll also get Nick's thoughts on fellow countryman Cam Smith and his performances earlier this year at the Players' Championship, which he won. And the Masters, where he had an opportunity to win, ended up finishing tied for third. Plus, we'll hear about Nick's new book, How to Play Your Best Golf. Looking forward to having him back on the show. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. And then we'll round out tonight's show with a return visit from Michael Breed. Since I know how much you guys love the game of golf, I know you're like me, listening to Michael's show, A New Breed of Golf, every day. I'll get Michael's thoughts on the steady stream of players migrating over from the PGA Tour to the Live Tour. We'll hear which players he thinks would be a backbreaker if that player or players left the PGA Tour and went over to live. I'll get his thoughts on a couple of articles written by his friend Mark Cannizzaro of the New York Post about the tour's greed, oh, by the way, an unwillingness to listen to its own players who came to them last fall with ideas how they could stave off interest in anybody going over to the Live Tour. This whole thing may have been averted had they just listened to the players. And you may know, That Michael loves baseball. You may know that Michael played high school ball. But did you know he once pitched back-to-back games? First game, he threw it right-handed. The second game, he threw it left-handed. We'll talk about that and a whole lot more when he joins me a little bit later on in the hour. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our friends over at the McLemore. As you guys know, my buddies and I, we were there again a few weeks ago for our annual golf trip, and it was even better the second time around. Everything about the place is first class. The accommodations are fantastic. The practice facility is great and has gotten even greater since they've opened their new Himalayas putting course. The on-premise restaurant called The Craig is outstanding food and service. And to say the course is spectacular is an understatement. Can't say enough great things about the place, folks. Go online to com to see for yourself how spectacular it is. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. Our friend and PGA Tour caddy and my guest from a few weeks ago, Kip Henley, said, Outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. Golf Digest agreed, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. And Lynx Magazine doubled down on that naming it one of the top 10 finishing holes in all of golf. See why we're all bragging about the course and the resort by going online to themaclemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by our friends over at TaylorMade. Golf's an interesting game because the better you hit the ball, the fewer shots you have to hit. That means the better you hit the ball, the less golf you actually have to play. That's why TaylorMade made the all-new Stealth Iron. TaylorMade Stealth Irons feature a cat-back design with a 3D toe wrap designed to deliver increased distance throughout the bag and more forgiveness on those occasional, or maybe not so occasional, less-than-perfect shots. The result? Better shots more often, so you get to have more fun more often. So if you're the kind of golfer who wants to play less golf more often, try the all-new Stealth Irons from TaylorMade. Beyond Driven. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me is Dottie Pepper. Let me remind you about Dottie's background. She's from Saratoga Springs, New York. In 1981, at the age of 15, she won the New York State Amateur and the New York Junior Amateur title. She repeated as New York Junior Amateur champion in 1983. In 1981, she was a member of the Junior World Cup team as well. She was low amateur in the 1984 U.S. Open. She played her college golf at Furman, where she was a three-time All-American and lettered all four years. She won five collegiate tournaments, which is tied for the most in school history with Betsy King and Beth Daniel. Her career stroke average of 75.96 is still one of the top 15 all time there. She had top five finishes in the NCAA National Championship in three of her four years during her college career. She was named the Furman Female Athlete of the Year twice in 1985 and 87. She was inducted into their Athletic Hall of Fame in 1991 and their Annual Coaches Award is named in her honor. She was a member of the 1986 Curtis Cup team. She turned pro in 88 and won 17 times on the LPGA Tour, including two majors at the 1992 and 99 ANA Inspiration. Her winning score of 19 under par in 99 is still the lowest score to par in a major. She had five other top fives in majors while out on tour. She was a member of six Solheim Cup teams. She retired from competitive golf in 2004, and she began working as a golf commentator in 2005 for the Golf Channel and NBC. She's also been in the booth and doing on-course commentating for ESPN and now CBS. She was inducted into the South Carolina Athletic Hall of Fame in 2008, and I am very honored she is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Dottie, thanks for coming back on the show.
2: Chris, how are you tonight?
1: I'm fantastic. How are you? You're a busy lady. Yeah. What's going on?
2: Well, dinner's on, I've, I've timed this out perfectly. You know, this, this type A personality and schedule driven person has, um, has homemade risotto. I will say, okay, not totally from scratch because I didn't do my own bone broth, but risotto from scratch semi on, on the stove. And, um, I think we're about 30 minutes out. <laughs>
1: that
2: is perfect. So Dottie, talk about what
1: your schedule looked like. You're a busy lady, like I say. What's coming up for you?
2: I'm in the, I'm actually in the wind down part of our schedule. Uh, I've done 15 tournaments so far for CBS. One with the Latin America Amber Championship for our friends at, at the Masters and the USGA and RNA. So that, that kind of kicked off the season. And then we went to San Diego and now, Right to this point, uh, leaving for the John Deere Classic on Friday morning. So, we're we're sunsetting our schedule, but we've still got an amazing trip to the Scottish Open ahead. Three uh, M, as I said, John Deere this week, uh, and then we'll end up with Detroit and the uh, Wyndham Championship in Greensboro.
1: Donnie, you mentioned the Masters, and you made history at Augusta National, becoming the first on-course commentator in the history of the tournament. Augusta National doesn't change things up like that often. How did you learn that that was going to take place, and what was that like for you? Well,
2: it's funny. I, I can actually pull up the date and time of the phone call on my saved messages, and it was from our producer at the time, Lance Barrow, and, um, well, I'll tell you when it was. It was October 2nd of 2020, and he said, uh just, just wanted to check in with you. I was actually in the Pilates studio doing a workout and I you know, just wanted to check in with you and see if you'd be up for uh, walking the golf course and being the only walker on the ground in November, the November 2020 Masters. And I couldn't call him back fast enough. I, I was, <laughs> I was shocked. I was surprised. Um, and then I ran right back into my instructor and we booked uh, we, we doubled up between then and when I was going to leave for November because it's the November Masters. Because, as you know, anybody who's been on the ground know how knows how difficult it is, especially if you're hauling more equipment on you. It's, it's understatedly, I, I think, the most hilly, secretly hilly golf course that we certainly play uh, on our schedule.
1: And to that point, Dottie, you had to be in tremendous shape because. You're great just because you're always great at what you do, but you never sounded out of breath. And like you say, Augusta National's got to be the most difficult walking course. And I I think some something most of us don't realize. You talk about hauling equipment; you got a bunch of weight wrapped around you, trying to get up and down those hills. Talk about the challenge of doing that.
2: Well, Chris, I, I, I sort of knew what was coming, but yeah, at that time because of the COVID restrictions, I was carrying a monitor. Plus all of the RF equipment, radio frequency equipment that, that gets me on the airplane. I think the other, the other interesting thing was that this was all brand new because there'd never really been that, that app at Augusta National for somebody to be able to, to relay that information in real time. So it was a learning experience for a lot of people. And the team that, that CBS and Augusta put together to, to make that happen technologically was was pretty amazing, and we continued to learn because now this is the third time I've done it.
1: And Dottie, I read that Tiger Woods saw you out there in the fairway and stopped to ask what you were doing there. You mind sharing that story?
2: Well, <laughs> typically, there's not a lot of people inside the ropes at Augusta National at any time during during the tournament week, and I, because of the weather, uh, was originally assigned to Dustin Johnson, but as you remember. The first day of the November 2020 Masters, we had a, a significant rain delay, so it, it kind of pushed everything out about three hours, if I remember correctly. So that it, it changed uh, the wave. So instead of going with with DJ, I then was able to finish Tiger's round and then go with DJ from the start. So I got to in between 13 and 14. I I called the shots at the at the green at 13 jumped up ahead and was cutting across the fairway behind the players at the 14th in the middle of the fairway, and Tiger stopped dead in his track. And he said, wait, what are you doing in the middle of the fairway here? Because there's just (laughs) never been anybody on the ground. And I just quickly said as I kept that walking, "Um, it's so 2020, isn't it? (laughs) Because we just did did things differently in 2020 than we'd never done before. And to some point, we continue to do that.
1: And Dottie, when I was listening to you earlier this year covering the Masters, on Sunday, after Cam Smith made that great birdie on 11 to give himself an opportunity to make a back nine charge, when he got to the 12th team, Frank Nabilo, who joined me a few weeks ago, he he talked about what the yardage was. You confirmed that Cam had pulled a nine iron for that shot. And I said to my son, when you said that, that's not enough club. And. And he put his ball into Rays Creek. And I want to get your thoughts. Why do players insist on going for the pin on the right hand side of that green on 12, particularly on Sunday or just on any round for that matter? Because when they do it more often than not, they end up in Rays Creek and then their opportunity to win the golf tournament is uh, pretty much evaporated.
2: So I, I think you have, you have two things that, that work there. Um, I would say for the majority of the players on the PGA tour, a bit of a cut is the preferred shot. So, it's sitting there asking for it, for that shot to be hit. Secondly, Cam was, in this particular situation, Cam was coming off an adrenaline boost with a birdie at 11. Uh was back when, as things can happen on the second night in Augusta, a, a, a two-shot swing here, a two-shot swing there. And I think that the combination of the two played in. There was a There was a set set up where the flag's there. If I hit a soft cut, I can get to it. I've got adrenaline pumping. I know I really don't want to be long either. But I would say when I got that signal from the tee, I was a little surprised too.
1: Dottie, going back to your history there at Augusta National, you were on the grounds for the 1987 Masters as a young college kid. Kind of a miraculous story of what transpired for you as a player at Furman at the time and how you got tickets and then. Got into the player's parking area. Do you mind sharing that story?
2: Well, I, I had, um uh, won the Lady Paladin, our home tournament. The team had also won the, the day before we, we finished on Saturdays and I had a, a phone call from a booster at Furman who had two extra tickets. He and his wife were not going on Sunday and said, would, would you use them? <laughs> Nobody says no to that opportunity. We're, Two hours away, so yes, I, I would love to do that. Um, but had no idea. I, mean, I think I had a total of twenty bucks in my pocket, Chris. That was all I had after, you know, a whole week at a tournament at our tournament, and this just kind of popped up. But I remember after being on the eighty-six Players Cup team, we were told that the player badge, player pin, would get you in, into any USGA tournament. And I thought, well, it's not a USGA tournament, but I'll stick it in my pocket anyway. And I also have my low amateur pin from the 84 U.S. Women's Open. So I get down there, really can't find any place to park. And I thought, well, might as well give it a try. So I rolled up to Magnolia Lane, and the security guard waved me through. I gave him wow. a of my two badges, and he waved me right through. And then when you got up to Founder Circle, they con- or close to it, they continued to wave me to the right. And next thing I knew, I was parked in player parking. <laughs> I mean, that would never, ever happen today. But I thought, well, okay, here I am. So I went with a, with a teammate of mine and we walked. I'd never seen the really the first nine, especially from four on on television. So we walked the entire first nine. We had plenty of time. We went and walked to par three. And then we went back and we started following the group of Larry Myers, of all people. And it turns out that he that he won.
1: And, Dottie, I know you were a big Seve fan, and you and our mutual friend Matthew Lawrence may have been the only two people yeah. uh, in the States pulling for 70 in the 86 Masters.
2: <laughs> which, That's right.
1: Which, I, as I recall, you watched in a van with the Furman's men's golf team on the way home from a tournament. Talk about the experience of trying to watch the 86 Masters and where you crushed when he hit that ball in the water on 15.
2: I, I was absolutely crushed. I was, I had gone up to Chapel Hill to visit one of my best friends. Well, my best friend from college, self, Candy Kessler at the time, Candy Comer now. And was, I got my ride back from the men that were, they played in the Tar Heel Invitational. So it's Sunday at the Masters and we have this, I don't know, it might have been a 6 by 6 black and white plug it into the cigarette lighter sort of television. And I, I just, we were all huddled over this little tiny screen. And I remember switching from affiliate to affiliate all the way from 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 uh, Chapel Hill all the way to Greenville. And we'd lose a signal and pick up a signal, like somebody, you know, messing around with the antenna because we, we can't mess a shot here. But it's devastated when seven hit it in the water. Absolutely devastated.
1: Dottie, I mentioned Matthew Lawrence, and he wanted me to say hello to you for him and and he said, ask her, what's the greatest round of golf you've witnessed as a player or as an on-course analyst?
2: Oh, wow. Uh, hmm. I I think for somebody who had the mojo and just kept it going, it was Rory at the RBC in 19 at the Canadian Open when he shot 61 in the final round. Um, not very often you get assigned to a player who's totally got it going in the final round and starts to break. You know, kind of knock on that door and that, that ha- happened at Hamilton. That was, that was pretty cool uh, to watch that. So been around you know, players like, like Tiger, um, and have had some pretty, pretty amazing experiences watching those guys play at the, at the very, very best. Yeah. You know, John Rahm, uh, threw 54 holes at the memorial before he tested positive for COVID. That, that was golf on autopilot and did. Not be able to to watch that come to fruition. You don't know what would have been uh, Dustin Johnson going mega low in in Boston as, in the FedEx Cup playoffs. I guess that was in 20 uh when he I don't know 30 under or something. It looked like a typo on the on the leaderboard. But I I think Rory shooting 61 last day in Canada was was pretty spectacular.
1: Thought he's switching gears a little bit. Yesterday we heard that Matthew Wolf and Carlos Ortiz and Eugenio Chichar are the latest PGA Tour players that are going to go join the Live Tour. Back in February, no one was talking about the Live Tour, or really taking it seriously. Certainly not that you know that some of the top players in the world would ever go over there. And people were even talking about this thing may not even get off the ground. What are your thoughts about where we are right now?
2: I think you have a decision um, as a player about where your priorities are, about what you play for, who you play for, why you play golf, why you dream, why you dreamed as a kid, and I can promise you that not one of these players that have gone to the lift who grew up standing over a putting green as the daylight faded as a kid saying. This is the putt that I'm going to make to win the world championship. It's greed. And I just think when, when money is at the forefront, it's not healthy for anybody. And I think players have forgotten where they came from. I think they've forgotten the platform that gave them the ability to make these choices.
1: And Dottie, most of the players that have gone over there are, are like, didn't floor me outside of Brooks Kepka. Because I thought Brooks was all about the majors. We've heard him talk about it for years. He really didn't care about Mm -hmm. the other tournaments. Didn't really practice very hard for any of the other tournaments. But as a four-time major winner, I really thought that's all he was out there to do was to win majors. And this now takes that away. Were you surprised at his defection?
2: I I was a little surprised. Uh, Again, I... I don't, I don't know what's going to happen going forward with eligibility in the major championships. Nobody knows. To me, this is exhibition. And I, I, played on a tour that took criticism for having 54 whole events, that that wasn't real competition. So what is this? It's not real competition.
1: Daddy, is there a player or two that if we learned in the coming weeks, this guy and that guy are going to go over to live that would really put the PGA tour behind the eight ball?
2: no I, I think today changed the ball game i i think uh the dp world tour and the alliance now that's been re- as bolstered has been uh reinforced with the pga tour it makes a big difference and it makes a difference in play in ways that i think maybe the tour hadn't excelled and and i think going back to a calendar year going back to the q school Uh, creating an avenue for players to get to the PGA Tour from the DP World Tour and still be able to go back and support their home tour answers a lot of questions and gives the best place to play professional golf among them.
1: Dottie, I want to go back to your playing days. You won your first major at the 1992 ANA Inspiration back when it was the Nabisco Dinosaur Classic. You beat Julie Inkster in a playoff, but it was a wild finish. She had a one-stroke lead over you and Patty Sheehan going into 18, which was a par five. Patty hits it just over the green with her third shot. Julie sticks it in there about 10 or 12 feet. And then you step up after that and hit it inside of Julie to about four feet. Give a little fist pump when that shot gets pulled off. Take us through what happened from there.
2: It's funny. I had, uh, had dinner Saturday night with Nick Faldo. Uh, over at the travelers and there were six that was sitting around the table and he said to me, Dottie, what was the most significant shot of your career? And I think that wedge shot set up everything that happened after because it, you know, enabled me to go into a playoff for a major. It to me validated everything I'd done for, for the previous couple of years and set the kind of set everything else in motion and uh, it was a wedge that landed four and a half feet or so uh, under and right of the hole. Julie had a 10-12 footer, like you said, left it short coming downhill from the left side. And I didn't have I didn't have any toys. I mean, the ball had to go in. And so it's one of those will it in sort of putts. And then I, I made a routine four at the last or at the first or first full playoff. And this is barbat information for you. I so I won the Dinah twice now, which is the Chevron Championship. Uh, but I only dove once because I won on the landlocked tent and they had to get off the air. So I got the, the trophy from Dinah and the chairman of Nabisco and off we went. Never saw water. <laughs> Which was a good thing, I think.
1: <laughs> Dottie, one more before I let you go. And something else that you may have never imagined in the past, but your book, Letters to a Future Champion, My Time with Mr. Pulver. Sold out of the hard copies of that book. You've got a, you got a handful yeah. left there of the soft copies, but knowing that that book became so meaningful to so many people has got to make you feel great.
2: It, it does, Chris. Um, I re- it was, it was, I think today, a year ago that I watched the tractor trailer roll up with the second printing and it put me, um, in the neighborhood of like 50, 100 copies total. And I'm thinking myself, what in the world am I going to do with all of this? And I mentioned Candy Comer earlier. Um, her son was actually here and he and I unloaded that truck and moved most of it into our basement. Wow. And it, it was, yeah, <laughs> we, we, we earned our meal that night. Uh, um, and I, could, <laughs> I, I've, I've sold through about 70% even of the paper copies and I printed that many so that I could get it out the door, even in a state like New York that, that taxes at whatever percentage. So, the people who walk out the door, kids included for with a really valuable book printed in the highest manner possible for less than twenty bucks and and we did it and and I'm so proud of it because I still get notes from people saying how they've read it, how it reminded them of their mentors, they've reached out to their mentors, and that they've given it to a family member, and they've done the same thing or a friend and they've done the same thing and then Last call. I, I did the um, the audio book mostly because my my grandmother has macular degeneration, and while I gave her the printed copy of the book, she couldn't enjoy it. So now she can hear it. So it was. It, it's been such a great journey to to share what was so meaningful for me—a relationship with with a retired professional who really laid the groundwork for everything I've been able to do in the game, on the course and away. Um, it's just, it's been remarkable.
1: So, Dottie, before I let you go, let our listeners know how how they can get one of those few remaining soft copy books. And then also where they can listen to the audio book and then follow you on social media and on your website.
2: Okay. So, well, website's the first answer. You can always get my book at net. Uh, I fill all the orders myself if there's a request for a personalization. I I handle that all myself. Um uh, how you can get to the audiobook, it's virtually everywhere now. Um starting at Audible. And it's that's actually listed on my website as well with Direct Connect. So when when we went to Amazon, that was a big deal. Uh, but now we can you now it's on Audible, Barnes and Noble, Kobo, anywhere you want to be able to find it, it's there. And what was your second question?
1: how can we follow you on on social media as well yes
2: on social media okay i'm on instagram at dotty underscore pepper uh same thing on twitter and i do have a professional athlete account on facebook as well at dotty pepper
1: dotty you're awesome my friend i can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy night to come back and be a part of the show i hope we have the privilege of catching up with you again soon
2: would love to do it. And I wish you could smell the kitchen because it's really good right now. <laughs> I wish I could, too. I'm jealous as I could
1: be. Good for you and your husband. <laughs> Dottie, you're fantastic. Thank Thanks. you. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Thanks, Chris. See you, Dottie. That is the great Dottie Pepper. net is the website. The book, again, it is called Letters to a Future Champion, My Time with Mr. Pulver. You get an opportunity to get a uh, a soft copy of that book or go online on Audible because Dottie's one of the narrators. So you'll get to hear her tell the story herself. It's fantastic there, too. Dottie is just one of the most special people on the planet. One of the best color commentators and analysts you'll ever find in any sport. And I'm very honored that she came back to be a part of the show tonight. And like I say, I hope we get the privilege of having her back on the show again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Nick O'Hearn, I want to give a shout out to a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Shrixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball at Shrixon. A global leader in golf ball technology and innovation, Shrixon offers a wide variety of award-winning golf balls for golfers of every skill level. Whether you're searching for a tour performance golf ball or a distance golf ball with incredible feel, Shrixon provides the best golf balls at incredible prices. Srixon offers a wide variety of personalized options while also developing a highly visible colored golf ball as well. Select the right golf ball for your game today and trust it with Srixon. Check them out online at Srixon.com. S-R-I-X-O-N.com. Find the right golf ball for your game today. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Sun Mountain. There's a company nestled in the valley of Missoula, Montana that embodies the essence of quality, function, and innovation, and that's Sun Mountain, which started building golf bags back in 1981. They are an industry leader in golf bags, travel covers, outerwear, and push carts. With flagship products that you've come to know, like the C-130 cart bag, the 2.5 ultralight stand bag, the club glider travel cover, the speed cart, and Rainflex rain gear, Sun Mountain continues its quest to provide the very best in golf products to every range of golfer. Visit them online at sunmountaingolf.com to look at their amazing product. Okay, now back in next on the tee with me is former PGA Tour pro Nick O'Hearn. Let me remind you about Nick's background. He's from Perth, Western Australia. He grew up playing baseball, tennis, and golf. He turned pro back in 1994. Nick qualified for the European Tour on his very first attempt going through Q School in 1998. He played on the European Tour from 1999 to 2007, where he had seven second-place finishes. In 2004, he earned his way into the top 50 in the World Golf Ranking. 2005, he moved up to number 24 in the world and was a member of the international team at the President's Cup. He teamed with fellow countryman Peter Lonard to defeat Davis Love and Kenny Perry in the Friday matches. And on Saturday, he paired with Tim Clark to defeat Fred Funk and David Toms. In 2006, he moved up a few notches to number 21 in the World Golf Rankings, and he won the Australian PGA Championship when he holed out from the Greenside Bunker to birdie the fourth playoff hole and defeat Peter Lonard. That season, he also had his best finish in a major, tying for sixth at the U.S. Open, and he won the Australia-Asia Order of Merit. Nick is the only player to defeat Tiger Woods twice in the World Golf Match Play event, He did so in 2005 and 2007. He's written two wonderful books titled Tour Mentality Inside the Mind of a Tour Pro. And his latest book is How to Play Your Best Golf, which you can find both of those out on Amazon.com. And I'm thrilled to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Nick, how are you, my friend?
3: Hey, Chris, it's great to chat.
1: Nick, it's, uh, it's sort of, it's sort of magical because here I am talking to you at, uh, a little after 8.30 on Tuesday night and it's Wednesday morning for you over in Australia. Sort of like a look into the future. It's got to be a weird thing. It is certainly weird. We have probably got a bit of a delay,
3: but, uh, you know, that's the unfortunate part about technology. But yeah, I'm, uh, I'm just pulling over. Actually, I'm heading down to play, uh, play a golf course down on the Mornington Peninsula here in Melbourne and, uh, looking forward to a fun day.
1: Nick, like I mentioned in your intro, you recently published your second book titled, How to Play Your Best Golf, Strategies from a Tour Pro. Talk about what we're going to learn when we get the book.
3: Well, it's an interesting one with this book because you know, my first one was more about the mental game. And, um, ever since then, I've been thinking of writing a follow up, um, uh, to that one, but more about all the things I've been helping golfers with, I guess, the last few years. And, and really that, you know, there was, strategy and how to play in different conditions and uh, off different lies and and really how to how to get the most out of your game. Like, I think my wife summed it up perfectly the other day when she said, you know, this book is, is all about everything you don't learn on the driving range, which is a, a pretty cool way to think about it, I guess, because it's, it's not so much telling people how to swing the golf club, it's more so how to play to the best of your ability with whatever swing you have, whatever putting stroke you have and things like that. So it's very much a uh, get the most out of whatever you have type of uh, golf book
1: and nick when i went onto your website which is com, i gotta ask you i see a picture on there of a golf ball with a kangaroo drawn on it is that the way you marked your golf ball or is that just done for the website no no that's,
3: that's the way i've done it my whole career funnily enough my wife um, back in about 2000 i was representing australia at the dunhill cup and she said oh you should do something patriotic and i thought well Okay, and, and she's an artist, so she said, oh, let, let me draw a kangaroo on the golf ball. So, uh, I started doing it back then, and, and then once she realized she had to draw about 24 kangaroos every week on these golf balls, or 36, depending on how many balls I went through, she said, you know what, I think you need to learn how to do it. So, <laughs> so it's one of those things where I, uh, I, I draw on the uh, balls every time, and it, it, uh, featured quite prominently on, you know, a number of years ago on one of those tireless commercials where it was, How do you mark your golf ball?
1: Nick, I want to get your perspective with what's going on between the PGA Tour and the Live Tour players going from the PGA Tour over there. Do you think it's, is it a money grab or do you think there's more to it than that?
3: Oh, I think you answered the question right there. Of course it's for the money, that's for sure. And if anyone says any different, well, I'm pro- probably sure they're, uh, they're lying to themselves, but, uh, and to the public for that matter. Yeah, it's, um, you know, It is all about the money, obviously, but it, I, I can sort of understand it for a lot of the players in certain times of their career. I mean, if they don't think they're going to be uh prominent players and really, uh, I guess, feature in majors too much anymore, well, then it, it makes sense for them to go, I guess, if they want to just sort of retire and, and enjoy the, the fruits of all their labor from beforehand. But if you feel as though you're still competitive and you want to play against the best players in the world, well, then the PGA Tour is where you obviously want to be. So, you know, there's a lot of conflicting stories and it's a, it's a fascinating time for golf at the moment. And I think even though it's very much fracturing the game right now, I think in the long term, it'll be a good thing because the tour has obviously come out and, and then they're starting to change their schedule, introduce new types of events. And I just, I think I just heard today that the European tour is going to start giving cards out there for the PGA tour as well. So it's very much disrupting the game of golf. And I think in the long run, it'll be good for the game. But right now it's obviously, uh, uh, it's on a bit of a collision course. So we're going to, be very inter- interesting to see what happens over the next year or two. Like.
1: Could we have avoided all of this, Nick? I mean, it seems like, to your point, Jay Monaghan is making a whole lot of adjustments, which are very LipTor-esque for the things that he's seeing going on over there. I would have guessed that players had come to him, Norman may have come to him at some point with all of these suggestions, and they were sort of waved off like, no, we're not doing that. But now that they've sort of been forced into it, these ideas suddenly became really good. Could we have staved this off?
3: Potentially, yeah. I mean, obviously, you had the Premier Golf League was another uh, idea. What was it a couple of years ago? And and I heard they've been trying to approach the PGA Tour about it as well, and and maybe introduce some elements that they had in mind, which is very much what the Live Golf Tour seems to be all about. And it's uh it's the case with the PGA Tour, I think. You know, they they feel as though they have this very much a hold on on world golf, and they. Almost thought, well, no, this isn't going to happen. You know, we're, we're the number one tour in the world. And the closer it got, you know, people said, well, I think it is going to happen. And they seemed to just wanted to put it to the side and really not take much notice. And now that it is going, they've kind of gone, oh, heck. Okay. Well, we really need to do something now. So, um, they probably could have avoided this scenario, I guess, uh, in a way, um, you know, whether they wanted to, to develop a relationship with Greg Norman all those years ago, who knows, but, uh, we're in a very tumultuous time right now. That's for sure. And, you know, as I say, in the long run, I think it will be good for the game. But right now it's, um, it's providing some very interesting comedy for, well, not comedy, but commentary for, uh, for folks like yourself, Chris. That's for sure.
1: Did Greg ever come to you and your peers on tour back when you were playing in the early part of the 2000s with, you know, an idea for doing something different? Was this something that has been sort of, you, you mentioned, you know, a tour a couple of years ago, but I remember Greg talking about a world, a world golf tour way back in the day. Is this something that you guys heard about, you know, 20 years ago that he was thinking about doing? Well, back in the, I think
3: it was more the early to mid nineties is when he was talking about the world golf tours and, and, uh, and that sort of an idea and, and the PGA tour pretty much didn't copy his idea, but they, they, you know, that's where the world golf championships all started was after he, you know, what, I guess, put forward the idea of, of having a world golf tour. So that was their counter to, to things he was staying. Um, unfortunately, the world golf champions probably over the years haven't really uh developed as much as they would have liked. So it's, you know, one of those things. And as far as Greg approaching me, no, I've never had any commentary with him as, as far as any anything like this goes. Again, that was back in the 90s and really it's only been in recent years, I think, when he started all this up with the lift tour.
1: Nick, I want to go back to earlier this year at the players championship and the win by your fellow countryman, Cameron Smith. He won by a stroke, but not without some tense moments on the 72nd hole. Talk about what you saw from him and perhaps the worst and best shot of his career happening right <laughs> there on the last hole. Yeah. Well, I, I guess it
3: started with the tee shot. You know, he, 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 he'd had the quick hooks going. So it was no surprise to see him well out to the right and in the rough. I, I guess what did surprise me was how aggressive he was with that second shot. I figured it was more of a, a punch out sideways and leave himself maybe an 8 or a 9-9 nine nine in. And um, That one sort of surprised me because that's his home course. So I guess he should have known that the fairway does run quite a bit across there and maybe it was a bit of adrenaline. But um, as it turns out, when you have a wedge game like his, I mean, what a phenomenal force shot that was where he almost hold it and you knew basically all that he had to do was get something on the green and the way he was putting that day. Obviously he's one of the best putters in the world. He was probably going to hold it. So you talk about a roller coaster of emotions. I mean, it bit, reminded me a little bit of Adam Scott back in the day when he hit his second shot in the water and then had to get it up and down for his bogey to win as well. So, uh, maybe there's something about Aussies on that final hole. I don't know, but what an amazing <laughs> win for him and, and just an outstanding young man. And, uh, I just wish he'd get a haircut. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Nick, fast forward a few weeks to the Masters, and I thought he was going to make a charge on the back nine on Sunday after he birdied 11. But the moment my last guest, Dottie Pepper, said that uh, he had pulled out a nine iron, I knew it wasn't going to be enough club. And then one of the things that always drives me nuts, Nick, is guys going flag hunting on 12, especially on Sunday when it's there on the right. It just never is the right play. It it seems like the, the shot is, Always, no matter where the pin is, it's always over that bunker. What were your thoughts when uh, he got up there and uh, flared that shot into race creek?
3: Well, we've seen it so often, haven't we? You know, People hitting it right into that water. I mean, for me, interestingly enough, the 12th is never an issue because I'm a left-hander and that's one of the easier holes for a lefty given the way the green angles. But as far as Cam goes, I think one of the things people didn't really comment on was when he first was walking into the ball, there was a group walking off the 13th tee and he sort of backed away and rather than resetting and going back outing all over again, he he just kind of backed away and then walked back in again. So I don't think he was as clear perhaps walking into the ball and then I'm pretty sure he wasn't going flag hunting, it was just more a case of it was a poor swing. Uh I think he was aiming over that bunker or even left half of that bunker, which everyone knows that's where you need to go, but he just got a little quick on it and maybe just wasn't as committed a swing as uh well it obviously wasn't as a committed swing as as he had been putting on every other shot all day so but to me i think it was that moment just before he actually walked in the ball where he had to back away and then walk in again i would have loved to have seen him just gone back to the bag reset and start the whole process over again because i had plenty of time there was no rush but um you know in those situations when you're close it's uh it's a very fine line between winning and losing obviously and and all hats off to Scotty Scheffler as well. I mean, the way he putted and how he got it up and down and grinded through that round, that was an amazing effort.
1: And Nick, the previous Masters in November of twenty twenty, Cam became the first player in Masters history to shoot in the sixties all four rounds. To me now, this makes <laughs> him one of the favorites every year going into the Masters. In your mind, is he a guy that should be in the top one or two for if you're picking if you're gonna pick a winner? One of those guys needs to be Cam Smith.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he, I mean, his wedge game and his putting is, is second to none, really. And and I think you could say the same about Scotty Sheffler as well. So you always need to have a great wedge game and, and putting around Augusta. Now, for Cam, it really just depends on how he's uh, driving the ball, I think, because he's a fine iron player. And if he, he can get himself in position off the tee, well, then the course opens up nicely for him. And he's quite long off the tee these days. So the length of the golf course isn't a factor. And, Um, you know, one thing that kind of surprised me recently was at the U.S. PGA Championship at Southern Hills, how well he struck the ball and how poorly he putted. That was probably one of the worst uh, putting events that he's had all year. So it was a bit of a flip-flop in that regard.
1: But regarding Augusta, yeah, I'm always going to be back in camp.
3: He should be one of the favorites, for sure.
1: Nick, like I mentioned in your intro, you beat Tiger Woods twice in the World Golf Match Play event in 2005 and again in 2007. And in our past conversations, you said the key to beating Tiger is to get up on him early because he rarely comes back to win. And we've certainly seen that, you know, play out over the course of his career. Not a lot of, if he's not winning after 54 holes, not a lot of charges out of Tiger outside of 2019. And I'm not sure there was a, it was an actual charge in 2019 at the Masters, more than guys falling back to him. But talk about how you are able to make him uncomfortable and get those two wins. Well, I, I think first and foremost, I, I
3: like to tell people that I found his weakness, and that was he doesn't like short-hitting, left-handed Australians. <laughs> so, um, you know, as I mentioned, I think probably in previous conversations, yeah, the Tiger is the ultimate front runner, and, and as you alluded to, it, he'd only ever won majors either leading or tied for the lead going into the final round. So, if you get behind him, you kind of really don't have much chance because when I played him, I was treating this like a final round of a match play, so, uh, sorry, final round of a major, so to speak. So uh my plan was to get up early on him. And as it turned out in our first match in 2005, I had an eight foot putt on the first hole for, for a half, for a par. And my caddy says to me, he says, uh, Nick, this is for the match right here. So it was a big statement, but he knew that would lock me in. And, and I made it 30 the next two holes, went two up through three and, and never really let him back into the match. And then, Fortunately, the second time I played him, I went in with the trying to get ahead early. But early on, he wasn't actually playing very well. And through seven holes, I was four up, and I was just making pars. We're in Tucson, Arizona. It was a pretty cold, miserable day. But um, sure enough, he he hit one of those shots that he does, where he gives it the famous club swirl on about the eighth hole. And I knew he found his game, and and he pegged me all the way back to level through 16 holes. Um, I managed to birdie 17 to go one up, and then he birdied 18 to send it into extras. So. Uh, he had his one chance to beat me on the 19th hole to get one ahead because at this point I'd actually never trailed to him in two matches, but he, he missed his 30 chance and then I got him on the next hole on the 20th. So my, hear- my, my theory holds true, if you can get ahead of Tiger in match play, if you ever get a chance, not that um, too many people do get a chance, uh, you, have a, you have a chance to beat him. So I was very fortunate to be 2-0 and oh, and there probably won't be a third time, that's for sure.
1: Nick, one more before I let you go, and you turned 50 last October 18th. Any chance we're going to see you playing out on the Champions Tour?
3: Uh, highly unlikely. I'm I'm very happy being back in Australia these days. I may make an appearance uh, perhaps on the European Seniors Tour. The one thing, uh, you know, when I played in the U.S., unfortunately, I never won over there. So for me to get on the Champions Tour would have, have to be a lot of qualifying and a lot of practice and hard work, whereas these days I love helping other golfers, letting them work hard. Um, but I may make an appearance over in Europe on the Senior British Open or some events over there. And if I happen to play well, well, maybe that'll lead to some events in the U.S. But for the time being, I'm I'm very happy being back in Australia and um, watching my kids grow up and, and helping other golfers, which is a lot of fun.
1: Nick, before I let you go, remind our listeners again how they can get a copy of your book and then also follow you on social media. Yeah,
3: sure. My, my book's available on Amazon. That's probably the easiest way to get it. And I believe it's probably just coming out in all major bookstores there in the US now. It's in Europe and Australia. It's uh, it's available everywhere. Uh, social media wise, um, you know, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, those sorts of things, or I have my uh, website, com. Uh, you can always email me through that and I'd be uh, happy to help any uh, questions anyone ever has.
1: Well, Nick, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day over there in in, in uh, Australia. It's Wednesday morning over there. Thank you for that very much. Thanks for coming back on the show. I look forward to catching up with you again soon.
3: All right. Thanks. Great to chat, Chris, and all the best. Cheers.
1: Thanks, Nick. All the best to you and your family. That is the great Nick O'Hearn. NickOHearn.com is the website. Again, the title of the book is How to Play Your Best Golf, Strategies from a Tour Pro. You can go out on Amazon.com and get that. Uh, Nick's a fantastic guy. He's always been very generous with his time, and I certainly look forward to catching up with him again real soon. Okay, now back in next on the Tee with me is not only one of the very best instructors in our game, but also the host of a couple of the best golf shows on the planet, a new breed of golf and course record, and that's Michael Breed. Let me give you some background on Michael. He's from Greenwich, Connecticut played his college golf at Randolph-Macon College in Ashland, Virginia, from 1981 to 1985. He was a four-year letterman and was their number one player for three years and team captain his senior season. He won six times during his college career. Michael also played on their baseball team and once pitched back-to-back games, one right-handed and the other left-handed. We'll talk about more about that in a minute. He also played on the varsity tennis team and had a minute on the football team as well. Michael was inducted into their Athletics Hall of Fame in 2004. He went on to play on the Corn Ferry Tour and the PGA Tour. Since that time, Michael has soared up the rankings as a golf instructor. In 2003, he was named one of the top 100 instructors in America by Golf Magazine and has remained on that list every year since. In 2012, Golf Digest named him one of their top 50 instructors in America, and now he's inside their top 20. Also in 2012, Michael was named the PGA's National Teacher of the Year. Among his many other awards, he was named the Metropolitan Teacher of the Year in 2000 and 2009. He was the Metropolitan Horton Smith Award winner in 2006 and 7 for being a model of golf education. We've all been watching and listening to Michael help us improve our golf swing since he joined the Golf Channel in 1999. In 2002, Michael put the pilot together for a new breed of golf. Took a minute, but in 2008, that pilot turned into the Golfic, which made it on air on Monday night. I listen to Michael and his co-host Greg DeSharma every morning on my way into work on a new breed of golf, which you can find on SiriusXM Channel 92. And I'm very thrilled to have Michael back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Michael, thanks for coming back on the show.
0: Chris, that I'm telling you, that is, if I, if I listen to more introductions like that, I'm going to start to feel pretty good about myself. That was was quite an introduction, my man. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Michael. Yeah. So, Michael, (laughs) we have to
1: start by hearing about those back to back games you pitched in college, one right handed, the other left handed. That's unbelievable, but you got to be a baseball manager's dream because you can pitch on zero days rest. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well let me tell you first of all it wasn't in college i was i was 11 years old but i love whatever story you're gonna tell <laughs> so i'm all in it was uh you know it was at a time when i was trying to figure out whether i was a, a right-handed pitcher or a left-handed pitcher or shortstop or second base and i didn't know what was going on but i had two gloves and um and fortunately it worked out so yeah i pitched uh i pitched a little righty and then when that kind of didn't work out i switched over to lefty and and that worked out a little better. So it got, I got it done.
1: So, Michael, was your dream as a kid to be a PGA Tour player or shortstop for the Mets?
0: You know what? That's exactly right. My dream was to be a baseball player. That's all I wanted to be. And, uh, you know, fortunately for me, um I was a, a three-tool player, and I needed to be a five-tool player. And uh so I, I switched over to golf right when I was literally sort of in the high school, college uh frame. And um ended up going to Randolph Making to play a little baseball and then uh it turned out I played a little baseball and a little golf and a little tennis and football and you know, I had myself I, I I nobody is gonna say that I didn't I didn't enjoy my college time. I had a great time, played a lot of sports, had a lot of fun, no question.
1: And Michael, you endowed a fund to the men's golf team there in honor of your coach Ted Keller. Talk about what Ted meant to you.
0: You know, I appreciate you bringing that up. So, um, Ted Keller was, was a, uh, first of all, he was, um, a phenomenal athlete and was a great coach, not just of the golf program, but also of the football program and, and, um, led my Randolph making yellow jacket to the Newt Rockney bowl in 1969. By the way, as an aside, the Randolph making yellow jacket basketball team just won the national championship. Uh, a few months ago um at the at the uh division three level um josh merkel the the head coach over there and i've had the pleasure of talking to the team and and uh adding some some i'll call it wisdom although it's probably that that's probably a stretch but um <laughs> i i have had the opportunity to be a part of of uh coach merkel's team and, and talk to some of the kids the the athletic programs that randolph making are phenomenal and, and ted keller i mean it all traces back to to him, he he was a, a football coach over there, and obviously a golf coach, and then the athletic director, and and he passed away sort of suddenly. Um, and you know, I kind of I, I know what the game has meant to me, and I know what Randolph macon has meant to me, and I I uh, made it a point to make sure that that I was a part of of the future of of the game um, at the college, and uh, so we endowed a, a scholarship program in his name, and and uh, have continued to be a part of it ever since.
1: Michael, switching gears a little bit, and your positive attitude and demeanor is what hooked many of us on you and your shows years ago, especially as we started to watch you on The Golf Fix. and But as you know, like social media can be a pretty nasty, negative place. How do you power through and deal with all that, not get caught up in that negativity and all that back and forth that we see too often on social media?
0: You know, it, I, I appreciate you asked that question that question Chris because one of the things that I look at I I'm a golfer right so I I I and I I coach people how to play and I always look at what something can be not what it is and I know there's a lot of people that have had um some challenging situations in their life and whatever that may be uh, I look at it like it's an opportunity for me to maybe take somebody that is looking at the world through a negative prism and and try to try to Maybe alter their mind in one way or another. So, you know, um, it's a, it's, I I engage in it because I really think I can help in a weird way. Um, And then you get to a point where with some people you can't help and that's just the way it is. And and you kind of, and I don't want to say I throw a pity party, but I certainly go, look, you know what? I'm sorry. I thought I could, I maybe could help in one way or another. It's not going to work out, but best of luck to you and I hope you have a great weekend. You know, that type of stuff. Um, but there are other people who, believe it or not, will, will go down that path. I'll ask them to email me. I'll give them a phone call and I'll have a conversation with them. And, and you know, in, in most situations, I'm able to kind of take them and get them to maybe look at something through a different, through a different lens. It's kind of like, and we talk about this a lot on, on, on our shows. It's, there are some coaches that will, ridiculed player for what they've done and then there are other coaches that will say all right next time let's try this instead of doing that that way why don't we try to do it this way so i like to be a next time kind of coach instead of a ridicule coach and and i i look at that in all facets of of life and so you know what if if i can help one person that's that that's great
1: Michael, we're on the heels of the Travelers Championship played up there in Cromwell, Connecticut, just a little south of Hartford. And you played in the 1994 Greater Hartford Open. You Monday qualified at Lyman Orchards in Middlefield to shoot 69 to make it into the field. But what was it like for you, not only getting in the field, but then dealing with the pressure of being in a PGA Tour event? Plus, I'm sure having your friends and family out there following you around for the rounds that you played.
0: You know, it's interesting. Um so I shot 71 in the final round which I didn't make the cut, but it was the last round of golf that my dad ever watched play and he he uh passed of Alzheimer's and um in a in a weird way when I kind of look back at at that now is almost what 30 years ago, um I I certainly think that there was sort of a script to that. I I I um I can't tell you that I I mean I, I would imagine if you went through uh Monday uh four spotters and, and you kinda looked at it and you went, How many times does does three under par get in? It's not very often. And um I happened to win that qualifier at three under and not that it wasn't a good field, but um, you know, there were tricky hole locations and, and things of that nature. And what I can tell you is is that when I reflect back on that time it was a an amazing experience for me and certainly one that, you know, having played some events on the on the Corn Ferry tour and having a little bit of of uh, experience at that higher level to get into a tour event and then particularly to get into a a, a tour event up there, um you know, in Connecticut, which is my home, uh, my home state, that, that meant a great deal. And, and uh, it was just, you know, it was one of those, it was one of those things that um it was, it was a fabulous experience. I, I, I did not get caught up in the illusion that I was going to be uh, a touring professional. It was clear. Many years prior to that, that I just didn't have the game that, that, uh, you need to have to be able to play at that level and certainly make a living doing it. But it was a, a phenomenal experience. And the cool part is, is that, you know, I earned it. It wasn't something that was given to me. I, I went out there. I, I played good and I had been playing good for a period of time there and, and, uh, got in and, and enjoyed a, a, a phenomenal week. And the other thing that's really interesting about that is in that four spotter, um, one of the individuals that got in, a guy named Jim Gentile, is one of my very close friends, and a guy that I had roomed with when I was down in Florida trying to to uh, figure out whether I I was good enough or not, some probably seven years earlier. And then one of the other guys that got in was a guy named Brad Frey, who I worked with at Birchwood Country Club. He went on to play golf at, at the University of Richmond. And three of the four of us, you know, there was a connection there, and that there was just. It was just one of those sort of, it's like finding a four-leaf clover. You you know, you kind of look for it, but it rarely shows up. And in this situation, it did.
1: Michael, I want to switch gears and get your thoughts on what we're seeing going on right now with the PGA Tour and Live Golf. It seems like every week we're hearing about another player or two heading over to the Live Tour. This week it's Matthew Wolf, Carlos Ortiz, and Eugenio Chachara, the number two ranked amateur in the world. Many people are talking about the defections being a pure money grab. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, I see Jay Monahan kind of scrambling around, making changes, doing some things that are looking like some of the things that uh, they're doing over there on the live tour. What are your thoughts about what we're seeing right now?
0: Well, I think I think there's a couple of things. I think one, it's impossible to compete with um, a, a, a $620 billion um, backing that has no interest of what we would term success, right? Success is much the same way as I explained to you about my playing career. I knew I wasn't going to be able to, to play at the level that I'd be able to make a living on the PGA Tour. And, um, you know, it's expensive. It was expensive to play the Corn Ferry Tour with. At my time, it was the, the Ben Hogan Tour. It's an expensive thing to do. And um, the the model that the PGA Tour has quite a bit different than the model that the Live Tour has. So at that point, you can't really compete no matter what you do. And the PGA Tour, I applaud them for what they're doing in making an effort to try to make the purses somewhat similar. But at the end of the day, there's no way that the PGA Tour is going to be able to pay somebody a $200 million playing bonus or a $150 million playing bonus. You can't do that. And so you can't really compete with that. And for me, when I look at this, it, it, you know, I what I love about the game of golf is it it's quite simple. The guy who shoots the lowest score wins, and it's pure. There's no relief pitcher. There's no designated hitter. There's no timeout. There's no coach that you can talk with. There's none of that. You go out there, and you are the person that is going to pitch. You're playing third base. You play shortstop. You play first base. You play all the positions. You hit all the shots. And so all the pressure is on you. And that's what I love about the game. And then the guy that, that does it the best, the person that does it the best makes the most amount of money, right? It's a true meritocracy. Well, the live tour is not that. Um, I know that the tournaments that they play in, the, the, you know, the purses are, are very high and that is somewhat of meritocracy. Although I would argue that with team, uh, part of it, it's not really. But at the same time, what it, what it shows is, is that the PGA tour, I I look at it this way. Somebody's trying to buy golf. Uh, some entity is trying to buy the game golf. And, and you know what? Um, it can be done in a weird way. It can be done. And you're seeing it with individuals like Bryson, like Dustin, like Brooks that are walking away from the PGA tour um so that they can uh somehow make a little bit more money, a lot more money, um, playing the live tour. And that that to me, you know, I'm I'm one of those people and and look, I've never been the smartest guy in the world, but I've also I've 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 always been a guy that's gonna work hard. And I've always felt that if I can outwork um individuals that I can have success and it's and it's and it's that's the way it, it's proven to be. And now when I look at this thing, I, I don't look at it through that light anymore. I don't look at it through the light of, you know, the, the best player wins here because that's not necessarily the case. In fact, it's not the case.
1: And Michael, your friend Mark Tanazaro of the New York Post, he wrote right, an please. article not that long ago about how Jay was sort of warned about what Liv had in mind going back to last fall. Some of the. Players met with him and shared some ideas that may have been able to save this whole thing off, but he rejected their ideas because, as Mark said, the tour's greed and the need to control everything. As more comes out, what are your thoughts? Are we starting to learn that maybe, you know, there's sort of both sides were wrong?
0: You know, I'll tell you this, Chris. I'm, I'm, so I I grew up in a family. My mother was a lawyer. My uncle was a lawyer. My cousin's a lawyer. I I know the law, uh, you know, not. Not enough to be able to practice it, but enough to be able to know one thing that there's three sides to every story and, and, uh, there's only one that's right. I know enough to know that I don't, I, I, there's not a way in the world that I could possibly get into that conversation. I don't know. What I know is this. I know that Jay Monahan is sitting in a, in a very difficult situation and he's doing what he needs to do to, to try to make sure that the PGA tour Days afloat that's his that's his hired responsibility and he's doing the very best he can for the players on the PGA tour to that end, I look at the players on the PGA tour and they like me have um, sponsors, endorsement deals, corporate outings and all that and the PGA tour created those opportunities for the players. They set it up whether you want to go back to nineteen sixty nine or nineteen sixty four. Or 1957, I don't care what year you go back to, that was the model. And you see the same thing as you watch, you know, this week is Wimbledon, you see the same thing, um, as, as well. United States uh, Tennis Association said some, some stuff and all of a sudden these players walk around and they've got logos all over the place and they're getting paid quite nicely from these people, um, th- these, these sponsors. So I look at it through the light of the PGA tour has done a lot to try to help grow um, the brands of these players. And I think, uh, you know, Commissioner Monahan is doing a, um, fantastic job. Is he, is he perfect? I, I don't, I only know of one perfect being in my entire, uh, life and I never met the man. It was over 2000 years ago. So I am, uh, quick to say I don't know what perfection looks like, but I also think that there's a lot of people who, who buy into the Vince Lombardi model of, you know, strive for perfection in hopes of greatness. And I think, you know, what you see out of out of Monahan and what you see out of players on the on the on the pack is they're trying to figure out how to make the very best situation that they possibly can for players that are playing on the PGA Tour. And um past that, I can't really comment on the other stuff because I don't know candidly anything else about it.
1: Michael, you've been an advocate. For years, I believe about tour players getting appearance money for playing in tournaments. And I wholeheartedly agree with you on that is we, as we see Monahan making some changes, could this be a good change that comes out of all of this that we start to see the players at least get a little something if they show up for a tournament, go through the pro ams out there entertaining us on Thursday and Friday? Maybe it's not their best week of the, of the season. But at least we they've drawn us out there to go watch them play. Could they, could we see, do you think that these guys might get a little something for showing up?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that they've, the, the PGA tour has taken a lot of steps down that path. I think you see, um, some of the, the payouts that are happening, uh, to players that are sort of in that, um, 125 range that they're getting, uh, bonus pools at the end. So I think they've done that um and and what I would say, and what I was an advocate of is, is what the PGA of america does in the p g a championship masters does it u s g a does it, and also the uh r n a with um uh the the open championship if you qualify to play in these events that even though you don 't make the cut, you make some you make some dollars some pay out five grand some pay out ten grand whatever but they make they do make money and so you know, that's been something that I believe that the PGA tour should do. And, um, I certainly think that they're, they're doing it. Maybe not the week of the event, but certainly by the time the year is over, the, these players are getting compensated for their expenses that they uh, incur when they go and play, be it at travelers or wherever it may be.
1: Michael, just a couple more before I let you go and. I was listening to you on your show this morning when uh, you were talking with Brad Fax and asking him about Lexi Thompson's putting yeah. performance coming down the stretch on on Sunday. It, I was rooting so hard for her to pull this thing off, and I got a little concerned on 14 when she made the bogey, but she makes a nice putt on 15 to come back. But then the you know, what we saw from her on 16 and 17. She sort of reminds me of rooting hard for Phil to win a U.S. Open back in the early 2000s. You just held your breath and thought, you know, you hoped yeah. that the train wreck didn't happen. What were your thoughts about what you saw from her over the last few holes?
0: Well, I, I, I there are a lot of things. I think Lexi is a a brilliant player, and I felt the exact same thing that, that you felt. All of us that were watching it felt the exact same thing, which was you're hoping that she makes it. But your brain, I mean, you can't watch it, um, without thinking, oh my gosh, she's going to miss. And by the way, it's not like it's, you know, inside. I mean, she missed a one and a half foot or two foot putt. I mean, it was, it was very short. She never touched the hole. Um, there, there are a a couple of thoughts, right? Obviously there's a compassion that you have that you just, you feel so bad for. At the same time, you know, what, what it does for me as a coach, And what I think to myself and what I share with my students is you have to find something that when you are nervous allows you to perform. And she's gone to the claw grip and that style grip doesn't seem to be able to take out these twitch muscles that she, she has that are creating that. Now look, there's no question that it's a mental thing, not a physical thing, but at the same time, the way back to mental strength sometimes is um believing in what you're doing so wholeheartedly that you can't rationally figure out how you could miss a putt. And I think you've seen it with a number of players who have gone to the, the arm lock style or uh, left hand low or lead hand low. And I do think that at some point, Lexi's got to experiment with something in the, in, in the, uh, you know, alternative to what she's doing right now because what I fear, and we saw this at the US Open as well, or the US Women's Open, what I fear is is that this is going to continue until she finds the the um uh, model to be able to help her right the ship and get through this. And I think when she does do that, and I believe she will, then I think that there are not just one major, but many majors that are ahead of her. But she's gotta find the, the the key to allow her to be able to um, have the confidence to know that she can hit her target under pressure. And right now, it just looks like to me that she's just trying to move a ball, um, not try to hit a ball in a specific direction at a specific speed.
1: Michael, one of the things that I've talked to my other two guests tonight, Nick O'Hearn and Dottie Pepper about, one of the things that drives me crazy is the 12th hole at Augusta National. We were talking about, you know, guys going for the pin on 12 on Sunday, but even during the, you know, the other round, to me, the play is always over the bunker and they sort of give you that sucker pin on Sunday where it's sitting right, right nicely out there on the right hand side. Guys go for that and end up in Ray's Creek. Talk about, you know, wh- why do guys insist? We've seen it happen badly for year, year after year. We saw in 2019 when Tiger won. Guys going in the, in the creek. We saw Cam Smith go in the creek. We've seen Jordan Spieth go in the creek. Why do guys continue to go at that pin when they know they don't need to do that?
0: Um, I think it's a couple of things. I think one circumstances, uh, speak to what you do. So I would, uh, you can't make all situations the exact same, right? I mean, you're, you're right. Uh, Kepka hit it in there and Bolter hit it in there and a lot of guys have done that, no question. Um, but the the circumstances are different and what I would say is, is that it's very difficult to take an elite level player, put a nine iron or a wedge in their hand and ask them to play away from a flag because they think that there's a possibility that me- they might not be able to, to pull the shot off. and One of the things that, that I know all too well is that, um, these players that are the elite players that are out there on the PGA and LPGA tours, they're out there because they believe they can execute the shot. And most times they do. And so what I would say is that it's a very difficult thing to take that, that player who's playing great, by the way. It's not like they're coming in there. Like take Molinari. He was playing fantastic golf without question and he hit a bad shot should he have played away from that I i i would say this he could have played away from that i don't know that he should have played away from that and to that end the other thing is is that in your mind on a sunday you have seen so many of these failures right that there's the competitive side of you much the same way as reflect back to to when phil mickelson won at augusta and he's in the The pine straw on 13 with a a club in his hand, we're all debating whether he's going to lay up, and he's trying to figure out whether he's going to hit 6-iron or 5-iron at the flag. I, I just think there's a competitive nature that exists inside of every one of those players that says to them, I can aim this thing 12 feet or 10 feet to the left of that flag and be fine. And what ends up happening is is that sometimes they do and sometimes they don't.
1: Michael, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing. First of all, listen to your show and then find you online and on social media.
0: Yeah. So, uh, in, in every single place, it's just at Michael Breed. So, uh, they can find me there also too on SiriusXM. XM. Um, um, I, I host a new breed of golf and, um, it is from eight to, to 10 a.m. Monday through Friday. And then we have best of shows that are on Saturday and Sunday on, uh, on PGA Tour Radio, uh, series, uh, XF92. And then also on, on CBS and, and, uh, coming up, um, this Sunday, I'll, I'll have a half an hour show leading into, uh, the PGA Tour coverage of the John Deere Classic as well on, on, uh, CBS Sports Network every Monday. Um, you can find me there on a new breed of golf. So I'm kind of all over the, the place. Um, and I appreciate obviously all the things that you're doing Chris and and uh working as hard as you have worked to try to uh fit me into the into the schedule. I know I have a crazy schedule and, and you do as well and I appreciate your patience and uh and also inviting me uh to to do it and finally being able to work it out. And what I would say to you is thank you for all you're doing for the game of golf. You know how how uh, big I believe in in growing this game and and uh, it's little things like what we do, what you do that, uh, gets people interested in the game, provides insight and also, um, the stories that you tell. And, and, uh, we certainly appreciate it. Those that are fans, we certainly appreciate it. And I do as well. So thank you for all you do.
1: Well, I appreciate that very much, Michael. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to come back and be a part of the show. I hope I get the privilege of catching up with you again sometime real soon.
0: I look forward to that as well, Chris. Thank you.
1: Take care, Michael. All the best to
0: you and your family. All right. Thanks, Chris. All the best to you. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Bye bye.
1: That's the great Michael Breed, folks. And like I say, nobody does it better than Michael does. His shows, uh, are outstanding. His, you know, his positivity is the thing that made me gravitate towards him. And, uh, he's done a great job both on the radio shows, on the TV shows. And then what he puts out on social media. He's a huge credit to the game. We're all lucky to have a minute. And like I say, I hope I get the privilege of having him back on the show again before too long. Okay, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My sincere thanks again to Dottie Pepper, Nick O'Hearn, and Michael Breed for joining me tonight. Scheduled to join me next week are our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick, will be back. Plus, two other of the top instructors in the game, Bob Grissett and Christian Sheehan, will be here. Plus, Kyle Groth of Whiskers Golf will be making his next On the Tee debut. So, it's going to be a great show, folks. I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with us. You can listen to this show as a podcast on just about every major podcast app out there. Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podcast.co, Boom, Player.fm, Podbean, if you've got a favorite podcasting app, we're probably on that one, too. Just type in Next on the T in the search bar. You'll probably find us on there. Please check out our website, net, to see what our upcoming guest schedule looks like. Plus, we give you links back to recent episodes and individual guest segments. So whether you got 20 minutes or two hours, we've got some great golf content on there for you as well. Folks, I can't thank you all again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. I know you've got a lot of great golf podcasts out there to choose from. I am very thankful that you're making Next on the Tee one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friend.